This podcast is brought to you by G Adventures, the 2018 Escorted Touring Company of the Year, as recognised by the Australian Travel Awards. At G Adventures, they help you connect to the world through small group travel. On each of their tours, you will get to know locals every step of the way, from the places you roam, to the hotels you stay at, to the restaurants where you enjoy your meals. Because G Adventures believe it's only by exploring our world that you understand how great it and its people can be. Our world deserves more you. See gadventures.com.au to find out where in the world they can take you. Hi there, listener. It's Nathan from Dumbo Feather. I wanted to let you know about our annual reader survey that's happening until the end of January. It's your chance to tell us what you think about Dumbo Feather and to help shape our future. By entering, you go in for the chance to win a G Adventures wellness trip to Costa Rica, valued at over $2,000. Head to dumbofeather.com forward slash win to complete the survey. We can't wait to hear what you have to say. This month on the podcast, we're hearing from childbirth educator, birth attendant and counsellor, Rhea Dempsey. For over 30 years, Rhea has been helping women to feel more empowered and better prepared when navigating childbirth, and she's known around the world for her earthy pragmatism. Rhea asks questions like, how do our attitudes towards birth reflect where we are as a society? And how can we help create better birthing options for mothers and babies? This conversation with Dumbo Feather friend and host of the All Being Well podcast, Kayla Robertson, goes deep on those questions and many more. Ria, it's such a pleasure for me to sit with you here today. And I have to admit, I originally didn't feel qualified to be giving this interview because I don't have children. I haven't been through the process of giving birth Um, but I'm very interested I'm very interested in it and I'm very interested in a non-medicalized birth or a natural birth and so I have a a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity and I suppose in that sense I'm probably a little bit more qualified than I gave myself credit for Um, and it's really from that place that I ask you these questions today and I'm so fascinated to learn more about your work to to start I wonder if you can just explain very simply how you define what it is that you do. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I'm a childbirth educator, um, and I guess that doesn't need too much explanation, just in terms of running workshops and for many, many years I've run um, weekly pregnancy classes and weekly postnatal classes and couples classes. So really that whole thing about educating around anything to do with pregnancy, childbirth, and that early time with with babies. Um, So that's one of the things that I do. I also am a counsellor, so um, qualified counselling, but most of the counselling work I do is around pregnancy, birth, and sadly in more recent years, far too much birth debriefing with with women who've had very distressing birth experiences. Um, So a counsellor, so I do that. I also uh, attend births, although not so much now, apart from the births that I can't refuse, like the births of my grandchildren or grandnieces and grandnephews, wow. and um, sometimes the births of baby girls whose births I was at when they were born and then them now having babies. What a privilege. Yeah, how brilliant, huh? Um, 
So, but over the span of my years of being involved in birth, I've been attending births. And when I started really, we, we didn't really have a name for what we were doing. We were, I started in the home birth scene, attending births. And I guess maybe we might have called ourselves lay midwives. We weren't medically trained midwives. But then this word doula came into the, into the mix coming out of America. And I guess now people would call me a doula. So that's some, somebody who's experienced in birth, experienced in being at birth and how to support being at birth, but without that sort of medical uh, training. Mm-hmm. So I combine a bit of all of that as well as just a passion for, for talking about the issues that relate to the big picture about birth. Mm, I've heard of the phrase of a doula as, yeah. as mothering the mother. Yes. Does that connect? Yes. I guess the movement, there, was, there were these always have been, I think, women who when they're around pregnant women have what I call this heart's calling to really be that companion, to be that walking beside, to sometimes hold, sometimes carry, sometimes drag, um, but to really sort of companion them across that experience, that rite of passage of birthing. And I guess in more recent time, the idea of the doula as sort of a bit distinct to the midwife who is carrying that sort of medical knowledge is I'm sure way back when we were all part of this you know there would be that extra knowledge of herbs or something or other that maybe we might have put into a midwife role as opposed to a doula role which is more in the emotional and psychological and physical support Um, now I think that you know midwives and many of them feel constrained but they have so much in terms of the medical and the technological as well as the work that they have to do in terms of their documentation and all of that that many of them would dearly love to be much more present to women who are laboring but there's a conflict there and so that idea of having a doula who is really there just for the support is is where it's sort of moved to Mm. and in fact what the research says for best outcomes for normal physiological childbirth uh, that women are supported by no, a known experienced caregiver who is with them one-on-one continuously throughout the labour, who is there specifically to provide support, who is not part of the woman's social circle and has some experience in the process. So uh, the research about doulas and I really would expand that to, to really midwives who are able to work in that one-on-one way um, the research is really fantastic in terms of normal physiological childbirth. The research is brilliant in terms of women moving through their birth experience. However, it actually unfolds feeling satisfied, feeling well nurtured, feeling in a you know good emotional and, and mental space after the birth. And unfortunately, in our culture in Australia at the moment, really only eight percent of women can access that sort of continuity of caregiver that the doula might be providing or the midwives who provide that sort of continuity of care. So within the system, it's very hard to get hold of it. So there's more doulas coming through because women are aware that this is what the research is saying as well. I think when they, you know, they tap into their feeling about it, then it makes feeling sense to them to, mm. to think that they'd want somebody with them who knows what they're doing and has been there and who can support them in a way rather than everybody in the room being freaked out about this whole new thing that they've never done before. Mm. So mm. so I think there's a, more of a move. Certainly when I started all that 40 years or so ago, there were very few of us 
doing that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as it grew, I knew everybody in Melbourne who was working doing this sort of work. And now there's so many I, I, I don't know half of them. <laughs> so that's encouraging on the, on the one hand. I feel mm. like it's become something stronger. Um, yeah, so it's one of those big cultural shifts, I think. Mm. Before before diving too deep into some of the research and yes. um, the stories, I'd love to learn more about what what drew you to this work. Oh. So you were a PE teacher, yes, originally, is that right? Mm-hmm. You know how how does it have its sort of roots within that yeah. that early career, and and what do you draw from it now? Yeah, so I was that woman, you know, having my first baby, and. Coming from a physical education background, so fit and strong and, you know, all of that. Uh, and this is in the 70s, so that birth... And also we were the, the group of women who were bringing our partners into that birth space as well. So just feeling like my body knew what it would, you know, what it was doing. Uh, I would was very comfortable with my body doing a whole lot of things, felt like it was strong and capable. And so I just assumed that the birth would just really unfold quite straightforwardly. And... That's not what happened, and I came... So I was really radicalised through that, my first daughter's birth experience. But the key things that I came to see afterwards, which is what happens with so many women, is that they can be filled with all of that confidence and that capacity and trust in their bodies and feel that they can do it. But what what was missing was an understanding of how strongly the particular practices in the hospitals were that were so embedded that had such an effect on how the birth would unfold. Mm. So much, and this is still the case, so now I talk about that is in terms of that, you know, it's one of the pathways down that cascade of interventions in birth is what I call circumstantial um, interventions, and that is about the circumstances of the hospital that the woman chooses to go to. Not very much actually about her mm. and how what her health status or the baby's health status. Not even so much about her and what she thinks she would is going to have happen or wants and plans to have happen. But those hospitals are just so strongly engaged in particular routines and routine practices that we know set off this cascade of interventions and that then the birth ends up being a classic birth for that hospital as opposed to a birth that's really around what the mother's capacity is. Mm. There's an obstetrician from America who's talking about this very strongly, saying that, you know, really the rate of seizures got nothing very much to do with the mother or the baby or the mother's body or whatever. It really just depends on which hospital door she happens to work in, walk into. Right. That will mean she's more likely to have a seizure or not have a seizure. Mm. And we would pretty well say that about Melbourne as well. So back to me when I had my first baby, I had no idea about that. I felt that if I went to this hospital or that hospital or I was the main player and so the um, birth would unfold how I was hoping and dreaming and assuming only to find that no, it ended up being pretty well how births were done in that particular Mm. hospital. So that radicalised me, I guess, and coming out of that birth thinking, you know, what the fuck happened there? And so then starting to look into that and finding out much more and then deciding then after that to have home births with my next two babies and became involved in the home birth scene and then here we are 
mm. 40 years later. Mm. Yeah. I was reading a little bit about your story while preparing for this interview and um, there was a quote about that first birth that I really love where you were talking about, I think it was in England at the time where you yeah. gave birth to your, your daughter, your, yes. first, your first child, mm-hmm. and that um, at the time the policy was for the baby and the mother to be separated after birth. Yeah. Um, I think was that for the mum to recover? Supposedly, yes. And, and you said that um, that felt really at odds with your instincts yeah. and you, you quoted that I've been awakened to something separate to my intellect about how I wanted to be with my baby, which was at odds with the routines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm just really fascinated by this idea of the intellect um, mm-hmm. because as a society, I think we're coming home to the, the importance of our intuition and our intellect and, and sometimes these yearnings that we have that are, um, bigger than our intelligence or yes. bigger than, than just our thought processes. But when it comes to something like birth and the medical system, often that's something that feels very separate yeah. to that. Um, like you say, I think there's sometimes a trust, a trust in it as there needs to be, that they will do their jobs. Yes. So how, how do we empower women that want to learn more about this sort of stuff um, to give them that, back that sense of agency mm. in all of this? Yeah. It's a beautiful question. Um, so if we're thinking about instincts in terms of mothers and babies, then of course it's through the body. Mm. It's through the body. It's not through the thinking of it. It's not through reading about it. It's about the awakening of the mother's body, f- both for the pregnancy and the carrying of the baby and the birth. This isn't an intellectual thing. It's really when women are in touch with that through the birth experience that their body just then continues to respond to um, yeah, knowing how to hold the baby and be with the baby. So... That's ideally what we would want to have. And that's ideally in terms of my experience with my first daughter that I came to feel this great grief between the what I was feeling that I wanted to do but what it seemed that the hospital was giving me permission to do. So the aspect about birth that can help that process in a sort of an unfolding way is that women are really still in touch strongly with their bodies and the body process through the labour itself, which then awakens this process of being ready to bodily know how to respond and be with the baby. Sounds very simple, but there's a hell of a lot going on (laughs) in all of that. Um, There's a shift in consciousness that's happening through that natural birth or that normal physiological childbirth if women are surrendering to it and being supported to work with it. There's a shift through you know, really the, the, the beta brain waves, which are really our you know, cognitive, normal, everyday consciousness that, we're, that we spend most of our time in, actually. Mm. So as the labour goes on and the, the activity in their body as well as the shift in hormones are drawing them, if they surrender to it, are drawing them deeper into their body experience. So the shift from the... the um, beta brain waves to the alpha brain waves, which are really more, it's like the, the body is calling. Mm. So there's a, not so much f- clear focus to the external world. The body is calling, and so there's a more an internal focus mm. that's happening. So we hopefully see that with women, that that happens. And it, when we're watching it, it lets us know that things are going so well when that starts to happen. As then the body experience intensifies as we're moving through the labour, then the woman gets drawn more into theta brain waves, which is really, I guess people know them much more in terms of maybe meditative states or really where they're not so much focused at all externally but very internally focused. 
so this we see this with women in labor as they really draw very internally their they're in a feeling state sort of aware of the sort of energy and the if you like the quality of energy around them and can be readily disturbed but if we don't disturb them they just drop further and further more deeply into their body um, and finally in the late part of the labor when it goes so beautifully women go into to really what we call the delta brain waves which are really those brain waves that I guess all the yogis and the spiritual practitioners of one sort and another, you know, work very hard to to tap into those brain waves because they're the brain waves where people feel like they're just at one with the universe. Mm. It's like the deepest part of expansive consciousness, like a transcendent consciousness, and this is all on offer for labouring women. Mm. And when they surrender to that and are supported and not disturbed and can follow that, then they go through those brainwaves and in each of those brainwaves not only are they tuning more to their own body but they're tuning more to the consciousness of the baby so in that you know the theta and the delta brainwaves really they're in the same consciousness that the baby's in so then when the baby's born and the mother is in that that shift of consciousness has happened then not only is the mother attuned to her body's instincts about how to be present with that baby but she's actually in a in a sort of a consciousness lock with the baby which really then gives her um, that intuitive insight in terms of what the baby needs and how to be with the baby so this is I've had the great privilege of not only experiencing that myself but have seen it seen it seen it seen it seen it Mm. you know I've been at over a thousand and 500 or so births now and nearly all of them most of them these normal physiological childbirths and just seeing this pattern and seeing this pattern and seeing that so it's sort of like it takes care of itself in a Mm. way um but what's happening in present birth culture is is a few things that are meaning that we're not seeing that happening in birth so much and i think one of the outcomes of that is that women are very unconfident going into once the baby's out how to be with the baby and they're relying on their thinking brain to understand how to do it rather than having that experience of that embedded bodily experience of knowing and trusting to be present to it um so one of the big things that's happened i think that means that this is where we are for so many women in the in the 80s in the mid 80s a major change happened which i think has really hijacked this aspect of normal physiological childbirth and this is the introduction of the epidural the, you know, at the time when epidurals started to come in, those of us working in natural birth, and we welcomed them in. We felt that, you know, if just sometimes in a birth, if the baby was really in a very difficult position or it was a particularly something really not going straightforwardly, that this could be very positive for, for the mother and the baby. What we didn't have the foresight to understand was that actually epidurals were going to hijack the whole story. And so now, of course, the the promise, the seduction, the siren song of the epidural is so embedded in every contemporary woman's brain around something to do with birth. And that because of that, in labor, because all that beautiful stuff I'm talking to you about, those brain waves, of course, mm-hmm. what you what we also have to understand is that that's a journey through functional physiological pain taking us there. 
So that aspect of being able to work with the pain and and allow that to surrendering to that so that that shifting consciousness is happening. Of course, the seduction of the epidural is that you don't have to go there. Mm. And so what then happens is that with the epidural in, we're missing a whole lot of things then. One of them is that with the epidural up, the mother is not being drawn into this, this shift in consciousness. In fact, she can just stay totally in her everyday conscious thinking brain. Not to mention that, of course, once we get the epidural in, it tends to play around with the naturally occurring hormones, and so then we have to top them up, and it becomes then a very medical experience, which looks a bit more like a woman in an intensive care ward rather than a woman who's working with her body and a, her baby in a, in a, you know, a normal physiological experience. We also have that, um, and this is linked also with the epidural, not exclusively, but partly, um, to the lack of um, naturally occurring oxytocin. So naturally occurring oxytocin is the driver, the hormonal driver of basically the labour. It's more complex than that, but it's the main driver. And as well, so that's the opening of the body, um, but oxytocin also is a multitasking love bomb of a hormone. It's, oxytocin is that hormone, that, you know, the tender and befriend hormone, the empathy hormone, the lovingness hormone, the hormone whenever we feel that sort of sweet vibe of lovingness. So um, in the labour, it's not only the oxytocin driving the contractions to open our body, it's also the oxytocin is opening our hearts ready for that bonding with the baby as well, the baby being suffused by all that oxytocin and getting ready to fall in love with us. That's the task of naturally occurring oxytocin. For the normal physiological childbirth to unfold, the baby more or less calls the shots and says, hey, mum, I'm ready. Hormones are exchanged. Hopefully the mother then picks up that hormone. She says, okay, yep, I'm ready. Let's rock and roll. And so then there's that hormonal story between the mother and the baby, the baby working physically also to birth itself, the mother with the brainwave changes and the surrendering to her body and all of that working together. So that then would mean that the full complement of oxytocin and other hormones are happening between the mother and the baby. And that when the baby's born, the baby is receiving the, the sort of the mother's oxytocin capacity is being transferred to the baby and the baby picking that up and then the two of them in that beautiful love mm. exchange, bonding exchange. At present, only 48% of babies get to start their own labours in that way. It's mm. what we call spontaneous onset of labour. And maybe just to say a pause, because a lot of people might think that the synthetic form of oxytocin is the same as mm. naturally occurring oxytocin. It's not the case. Synthetic oxytocin is just a one-track wonder. It doesn't do any of the falling in love caper. All it does is drive the contractions. When it comes into the mother's body, also shuts down her naturally occurring oxytocin. So once we start to put it into the mother's body system, then we need to keep putting it into the mother's mm. system to, to open for the birth to happen. Mm -hmm. So to come back to the stats, so of that 48% who start mums and babies together with, with that beautiful oxytocin flowing between them, 31% um, of that 48% are going to go on to be what we call augmented. Mm -hmm. And augmented means that using synthetic oxytocin to either speed it up, 
the labour up or to restart it if it's stalled or just some sense of it going too slow. Mm-hmm. Also, we have the induction rate is now 32%. And the induction, with induction, it's all synthetic oxytocin start from, from start to finish. Mm-hmm. No naturally occurring oxytocin in that picture, mm-hmm. what I call queen oxytocin. Then we have the elective Caesar rate, so this is where we're just deciding to do a Caesar, so that's 21%. Mm-hmm. No oxytocin in that picture, no queen oxytocin, none of this, what I'm talking about in that picture. Mm-hmm. And then also for women who give birth vaginally, even though it may be an induction or with augmented with synthetic oxytocin, at the point when the baby's born and when the placenta is to be delivered, then pretty well 95 mm. to 99% of women are getting an injection of synthetic oxytocin at that point. Mm. So we're really screwing with queen oxytocin big time in terms mm. of what we're doing with the synthetic form of oxytocin. Um, so many interconnecting bits and pieces in all of that. Absolutely. Now, it's worth, I suppose, addressing the elephant in the room here that yes. um, you do feel that there's a place for a medicalised birth, right? Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, all of the interventions, epidural included, all of those things have been designed to deal with specific medical complications to do with pregnancy and birth. And in Australia, you know, we're entirely privileged to be able to access all of those interventions if there's a medical need when we need them, unlike many women around the world who may need those interventions and can't access them. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of health dollar disparity. So we're very well served with all of those interventions. What's happening, however, is that the rates of all those interventions are not in specific relation to medical need. Mm. And maybe just to put that a little bit in context, so the World Health Organization looks at this. And they have uh, looked at, and it's been ratified a few times, um, across the world what would be considered to be appropriate levels of medical intervention for true medical need. Mm. And so, for instance, our induction rate now is 32%, Mm. and the World Health Organization suggests that really no country in the world would need an induction rate higher than 10% if we're talking about true medical need. So that's that. So um, I wouldn't think that Australian mums and babies are any worse off than anywhere else in the world. So this is about some of those other issues, yeah? Mm. And the other one... uh, big one is that the World Health Organization suggests that no country in the world would need a Caesar rate higher than between 10 and 15% for true medical need, and our Caesar rate is 34%. Mm. So I think that in the case of medical need, brilliant. We're so privileged to have access to them, and many mums and babies who otherwise wouldn't have been in such good shape have been able to be enabled to. It's just that for those of us who are interested in normal physiological childbirth or natural birth or working with our bodies and our babies, there's a huge discrepancy between what the figures for what we might want to have and what's actually happening in this medicalised situation. Mm. So why, yeah, Why do you think that is? Where's that discrepancy coming from, this sort of yeah. cultural approach that we have here to medicalise our births? Yeah. One, as I've said, um, is because really the when I first was involved in birth, of course, the stats were probably we were doing 
less seizures than would be best practice. And that was because at that point seizures really were a very dangerous operation in, their, in, in its own right. And so it would only be done if really things were so dire that, that you'd give it a go. Mm. Whereas now, just in medicine generally, all sorts of operative techniques have been in, improved so much that, that many, many, many op operations, including seizures, are much, more sa much safer as an operation. So it changes that shift about when you might think about doing them. So th that's part of the, the picture. The aspect that I'm talking about in terms of the epidural, the epidural has changed something about the way both women and, and all of us really think about labouring women. Mm. I think that we demonise labour pain and we pity women for the poor things having to deal with it. And this has only come about, been able to come about, when we can really take that, all of that functional physiological mm. pain away. So, and the demonising of labour pain, um, sort of for most women, there's sort of a lower threshold at which they might feel like they're they can't cope with it mm. because the benchmark is, well, you could be totally pain-free. So that shifting of the sort of cultural and social sense of poor women, that they have mm. to do that, is one part of what's making things more medicalised. There's also the shift more generally, I think, in medicine that many things that have been developed in the first sense for true medical need of one sort and another have shifted as I said before into the realm of social choice not, not only in birthing but in I mean one of the easiest ways is to think about you know maybe plastic surgery shifting to cosmetic surgery and um, and not only shifting from medical need to social choice but now shifting to a realm of social uh, social expectation mm. you know I'm so interested that you you spoke about um the pain of labour, how poor women, we demonise the pain. And yet earlier you spoke about this beautiful, quite poetic dance that our bodies go through when we move through the hormones and we have that full flush. Um, yeah. I know that you've previously described it as sort of the full satisfaction from a sexual encounter, that, yeah. you know, this, this gift of these hormones. And we're talking about the same, yeah. what could be the same experience here. Mm -hmm. So when women come to you, um, how, how can you support them through um, that pain management journey, through that crisis of confident moment that they may have? How do we normalise such extreme pain that we have never encountered, may never encounter again? Yeah. In terms of – but anybody doing something with their body towards some health and well-being and – personal best of something or other generally we're used to or we understand the, the concept of reaching what we might call a pain barrier yeah. yep. and feeling like oh, why did I get up at five o'clock this morning to come do this it's not much fun and we can feel in that that pain barrier because this is a where the body is the muscles are working strong and hard and all of that um, and when we reach that pain barrier Though, and many people are seeking that pain barrier when they go running or riding or whatever they're doing because they know that when they go through that pain barrier, they're then going to get this huge mm. um, surge of endorphins, mm. what's often called the runner's high or the bike rider's high or the high that comes with the endorphins. 
and that that gives them that uplift of energy, that well-being through their body, and they continue on to finish the fun run or whatever it is that they're doing. So many, many people understand this. They go hunting for that. They go out of their way to have those experiences. So birthing, it's on tap for women in labour because what happens when they're working with that, firstly, they've got to get their mindset to that normal physiological pain that Mm. comes with their body Mm. working strong and hard no signal about anything going wrong not this pain is not something to be afraid of it's not telling me that the birth is going badly it's okay exactly so as their intent that's intensifying then they can reach these a pain barrier I call it in my language you know hitting a crisis of confidence Mm. and when they reach that crisis of confidence remember at that point like the woman a woman who's doing a fun run if she's hitting a pain barrier she could lean into a feeling of all my friends are barracking for me you know all the colleagues at work are they hanging out you know they're just going to love knowing that I've gone through there's a whole lot of social valuing of us doing that sort of thing but the woman in labor who reaches that crisis of confidence and she's what she got to lean into there, there's no social valuing about her continuing to work through that crisis of confidence. The social message is, you poor thing, you don't have to do it. Yeah. So she's got to be very clear about having people in that circle who do value what she's doing and who can hold that energy, mm. can actually honour it and in a way celebrate in the intensity of it because we know it's so brilliant for the labour. Mm. But what's also happening for the woman, if she's supported to go through that, what I'm called, that crisis of confidence or this pain barrier, um, which maybe in a well-supported labour can last four or five contractions, not the whole of the labour, four or five contractions, and then she gets on a new groove. But what's happening also about the hormones, in the same way that we get that runner's high, that women get this flush of endorphins coming through that give them the birthing woman's high. But not only that, more importantly still, that the endorphins when they come through, because endorphins are really our body's sort of natural opiate-like substances, and if you've ever been around anybody who's had a whack of opiates, you know that they go on the nod, you know, that cerebral cortex just gets taken out of the picture. Mm. They're totally in the brainwaves shift. So this is what happens for women in labour. The, the pain, the intensifying of the functional physiological pain, going through that crisis of confidence, the endorphins come through, give the uplift, as well as taking out the cerebral cortex, so shifting then the brain waves from the um, beta state to the alpha state and actually at least to the theta state, if not even further, because of this shift of consciousness that comes because the endorphins come through. Mm. And when you're with women who are laboring and you're seeing this happening, you can see that for those few contractions, maybe you have to breathe with her or encourage her with some words or maybe some movement or some dancing or some music or in the water or things that can be helpful as well. But when... For those of us who've had the privilege of seeing this happen over and over again, we know that when we see this, we, that we're just coming to these points where things are going to be just shifting into this next realm. Mm. So there's no fear in the room around that, even, right. if the, even if the mother herself might be a bit fearful at that point. But she can ride the wave of other people's confidence of knowing that this is exactly how it's you know, designed to make this next shift. The aspect of the pain 
the functional physiological pain is so important to the process of normal physiological childbirth. You know, it's such a unique space that you're in because you speak about it so philosophically, the way that we approach pain, the way that we approach challenges. It's, it's about our sort of society and culture and where we're at in general and how that's reflected in the birthing process. And essentially you're having a very practical conversation. You're talking about the choices that are made, mm-hmm. be it by birthing mothers or the medical team or the support, the support crew around her uh, during labour. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's harbouring these, these two very distinct but interlinked worlds. Yeah. And I just wonder, you know, you, you talk about your first birth and how it kind of set you on this path, but there, there must be something that is calling to you that's even stronger than that to 40 years later still be on this crusade, as you call it, to, yeah. to support women uh, for those that are interested in, in a normal physiological birth. Yeah. It's a beautiful question again. Um, Firstly, I I would say that I'm now talking as a grandmother. And as a grandmother, I'm looking further into the future than I I was in terms of being a mother, and and certainly probably a lot further before I became a mother. So I'm looking into the future, and I'm thinking in the future where things are heading. If I look into the future and see that hardly any mums and babies are getting to experience in the physicality, let alone the rite of passage of birthing, are getting to experience the full complement of hormones that through evolution have been part of our, you know, the human heritage to be here. That gets me up in the morning and I feel also, you know, when you're in that birthing space and you see, I remember feeling it myself, but seeing it, witnessing it, that... that um, unfolding of the the intensity of transformation that can happen for the woman as she's birthing that coming into that that power that is needed then for that not only that journey of mothering but of course can be then translated into other things that she might want to take and you you hear those women say you know with that you know with the right support i can do anything mm. it's just such so I've heard someone say i was born when i gave birth yeah yeah mm. so powerful and strong so that's and having witnessed this and wanting and wishing and hoping that it can be witnessed forever ever ever would be part of my inspiration too and what that means to have strong and powerful women who mm are able to be strong and powerful by being present in in our femaleness, our womanliness, our uh, capacity for being in our bodies and birthing our babies as opposed to being powerful by cutting ourselves off from our female nature, our bodily nature. Um, That that I think would be transformative. Mm. You know, Rhea, it's, it's such a beautiful space that you're working in right this idea of holding space for women at a time where they have an opportunity to feel empowered where perhaps as a society it's a very disempowering experience and there's a a real sacredness and a privilege Mm -hmm. that comes with that Um, and it's so misunderstood Um, what is it that you feel most passionate the one thing if you could kind of help to 
that myth that you could squash about that particular moment? Mm. What is it that comes to mind? You know, you, I hadn't mentioned the word before, but certainly you've, you've mentioned the word sacred. And when, when we think about what I've explained in terms of the, the brainwave changes and that that's orchestrated through the hormones and the intensity of the labour... And there are, as I said before, there are many people looking for sacred and spiritual experiences who actively go out and manufacture that, that sort of process of shifting their brainwaves. And here it is on offer for birthing women mm. who can be supported to surrender to that process. Also, um, women and or couples who are looking for that sense of you know, strong intimacy sharing something of great import with one another and maybe they I don't know, go hiking together or they do this together. Here in this birth space, if they can, mm. there's that beautiful intensity of their intimacy, of their strength and courage together and you know, that's on offer for birthing too now that we've, we're bringing partners into the birth mm. space and if all, everybody is supported by somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, so that's a beautiful space for that sense of shared parenting to come forward in that. So there's so much about normal physiological childbirth as well as then the empowerment of women that can come when they feel like they're at one with their body, at one with their baby and at one with that, that process. That to my witnessing, not only experiencing myself, but that witnessing so often with women, with, with their partners, with families being born... It's just part of what's on offer mm. when it comes to birth. We value it in so many other parts mm. of our lives and yet somehow or other we've disconnected it from what is happening about birth. And um, so my passion is around trying to keep uh, some story around talking about these things in a way that maybe ignites... If women have that bit of yearning and that might, that might be ignited a little bit further so that they might act on that yearning rather than just being swept down the pathway of, you know, the medicalised birth mm. pathway. So that's what really fires me up and particularly, as I say, thinking about that, about what that might be. I have two granddaughters. What might that be like for them? By <laughs> the, the next generation babies, of women. The next generation of women. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. And big thanks to Ria and Kayla for their conversation. We've included links to Ria and Kayla's websites in our show notes. You can read our publisher Barry Liberman's conversation with Ria in issue 35 of Dumbo Feather. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor Lizzie. And the music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is supported by our friends at Impact Investment Group and Giant Leap, a venture capital fund that invests in businesses doing good in the world. One of Giant Leap's key themes is health and well-being, which means that they look for innovative businesses improving physical and mental well-being in communities. Impact Investment Group is also a B Corp, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change. 
while still making a buck. You can read more about Impact Investment Group by visiting dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by bee.